This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is. Name. Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Clay Abernathy and Stephen Miser are cousins. Both of their grandfathers are a guy called Daddy Jack. Daddy Jack bought a place called the Tecosquite Ranch, which is about three miles from the Mexico border in West Texas, or you can call it South Texas, in 1992. They essentially now manage and control this 8,200 acres of high fence, which to me is essentially out of Africa. You have zebras, you have kudu, you have scimitar horned oryx running all over the property. And so I wanted to have a conversation with them about the ethos of the land and what Daddy Jack imbued in them to allow them to really manage the property for what it's intended to do. So second generation, third generation on this property? Third. We're third, and there's been the fourth that has enjoyed it as well. Yeah, you both both have kids. Yes. This is an audio. This is an audio medium. You can't just you just can't shake your head. Can't see that either. No, I can. No, they cannot see that. (laughs) Um, So 
introduce yourself, Clay. Why don't you start? Clay Abernathy. Anything else anybody needs to know about Clay Abernathy? Uh, here with R.J. P. Safaris on the Tecoskeet Ranch, um, created by Daddy Jack. Daddy Jack was our my grandfather, Stephen okay. and I's grandfather. Uh, bought the place in 1992 and has grown from there. Yeah, Stephen, introduce yourself. Stephen Miser, uh, one of the third generation of Tecoskeet Ranch. Who was whose stomach was that? I think. It's it's Stevens with the shotgun mic. Was it? I don't know. One of us. We've all eaten lunch. So, um, Tecoskeet Ranch, how big, Clay? Uh, just under 8,200 acres. Like 8,176. Anybody, you, have you added to it, taken away from it? No, sir. Not in 30 years. Let me ask this question because I think it's the most important question when it comes to understanding a property regardless of whether it's high fenced or not what allows this property to exist mm, what allows it to exist is uh, persistence slow everything takes time uh, you it's like you've got baked answers man you don't get fast results and things you know um, I don't know. It's hard. It, it's it's hard. It's it's a slim margin, if any, at times. Um, okay, so let's talk about economics because you brought up margin already. This place has to make money. Correct. Correct. That's the end game right there. What if, what if the what if the place didn't make money? You'd have to make money somewhere else and and have the ability to put it back into this place. Our goal is to keep it maintained and self-sufficient. Why is it important to keep it maintained? Um, for the conservation of the animals. Uh, Gosh, it just sounds like such a standard crappy answer. Come on. For the conservation of the animals? Yes, if you don't keep the habitat... If it's overgrazed, if it's not managed properly, I mean, and then controlling your herd growth and repairing fences, and it's a lot of work. And a lot of money. Not a lot. I mean, we're in for it like Steven said, to pay the bills and to fix equipment and make improvements and set a little bit of a side just in case there's a die-off of animals or we can't hunt. Right. Or... So what you're saying is this this, this ranch is not a, a million-dollar moneymaker. What this ranch is is it has something, and we'll get into it, that allows some sort of revenue to come into the property to keep it maintained to keep up the habitat to keep up the fences and with a little bit of cream on the top that is either set aside for a rainy day or gets plowed right back into the farm to make sure that it's around for your kids and your grandkids one day exactly right 
and for their friends and their families. And did, did Daddy Jack ever sit you both down? Because you both are technically the stewards of the property now, right? Is that a, a fair assumption? That's a fair assumption. I mean, it, it's, it's a lot of family, but we're the ones that help it. How many, okay, let me ask this question. How many people are getting on the dozer and drum chopping this property? Two. Two. Okay, that answered the question. All right. Did Daddy Jack ever sit you boys down and go, this is what you are doing? This is why you are doing it? I don't think it was really, uh, it was more of years of being with him, spending just a ton of time with him. We were fortunate enough to spend time with him like he was a father. That's how much time we spent with him. Uh, It was just leading by example and... He never really was one to really communicate well. You just had to spend time with him and and uh, just pay attention. Did he insist you come down? He didn't have to insist. <laughs> yeah. I just mean, Texas boys raised, he, and that's if what he you made wanted a to phone do. call and said, "Hey, I'm going to the ranch this weekend. You boys want to go?" And we didn't have another conflict. We were here every time. Yeah. I mean, everything else could wait. Did you go hunting with Daddy Jack? All over. All over the world, right? Yes, sir. And on this property? Mm-hmm. Did he teach you how to hunt on this property, or you knew how to hunt already? We had a lease south of San Antonio and outside of Dilly and Pearsall, where we grew up. We both shot our first deer when we were five with him. Wow. And then at age eight, we were driving Jeeps to our blinds by ourselves. <laughs> I mean, he he taught us young mm-hmm. and gun safety and how to age a deer. You want to shoot the mature ones. And yeah, you he, shot a young one, you knew it. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> did he talk about, you know, we talk about the dozer and the drum chopping and clearing out of mesquite and all the things that is West Texas habitat management. Did he ever talk about that kind of stuff? Or he just did and you just... Okay, if he's doing it, it must be for a reason. I'm just going to do it. Right, and the and the windmills were high on the list for water for the animals. But he never talked about like this is why we're doing it. Uh, he he talked a lot about he tried all different kinds of seeds to see what would make it, and he would always talk about it. And uh, he found a couple that he liked that worked. So yeah, he did talk about that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's like the Holy Grail, right? To yeah. try and find that piece what of works. forage that, that will grow in this yeah. harsh environment that is West Texas. Yeah. And then some years he would plant many of acres and no rain. Oh, uh, yeah. Need water. Need water. So in terms of high fence, you know, we've, we're here because of a stigma tied to what high fence hunting is. Okay. You say, okay, like you have no idea what the stigma is. I guess growing up out here with it and, and see the results that it's allowed this place, the results that it's given us with the growth of each species that we introduce here, and we've learned which ones thrive, which ones don't, uh, it's been a huge asset. If someone is not from Texas, okay, 
how do you explain high fence? And I'll let you start, Clay, and then Stephen, you can fill in the gap. Or if you have a different opinion of how to explain it to someone. With, without the high fence, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about this. Uh, well, yeah, duh. You wouldn't be talking about and high fence if you didn't have a high well, fence. Okay, yeah. great start, Clay. But <laughs> rewind, rewind. Glad you started. Uh, it's like you closing the gate. <laughs> um, we wouldn't. Let me. I'll, I'll. Let me. Let me throw a softball at you. Okay. People outside of Texas that are not used to high fence hunting think that people put high fence high, put high fence up in Texas to make it easier to shoot and kill animals. That is not even close. That is false. It's false on this property. On this property. Why is it false? We've driven around for two solid days and we've only seen two of our hymns buck out of the 54. Um, Not that many lech we, we've seen I think nine zebra of the close to 50. Um, I mean, you can go out and try it. I mean, we've had hunters come down here going after a true trophy, and they went home empty-handed going after them. Mm -hmm. Steven? Uh, I think there is a misconception about high fences. Um. Let's go back to the ranch thing. Like, ranches get a, a misconception. Somebody drives by and they see a big ranch, they think there's a bunch of money involved with it. It's not necessarily true. Ranching is a very small margin. Um, it's hard to maintain. It's hard to keep. With high fences, it's just another tool to help you. Um, you can't make everybody happy. And, unfortunately, it is something you see. You can't hide it. Uh, typically it's on a road you're driving on it was in the middle of a place that you never saw it nobody ever say a word about it Uh, but you're going to see them and i do think it's a thing that's not going to go away Um, it's a private property uh, issue and in the state of texas private property is it's uh tail tight Mm -hmm. so really on a place like this let's use this as an example the high fence is there to allow you to protect an economic asset. Yes, sir. And hold your economic asset in a confined area. It's still free range. It's still tough hunting. So, so maybe I've given this a lot of thought and maybe it's unfair of me to, to lump it onto you, but is it then tech, is it then, does it all just boil down to a simple numbers game in terms of the area that is high fenced to the classific to that drives the individual's perception of the blurring of the line of fair chase? I think that is very hard to say, okay, what is the minimum? You have some people that say work their whole lives 
all they can afford is 200 acres, but they want to put the time and hard work into it to improve the quality of whatever animal they want to raise. And so it, they can manage it, watch them, see how the, how their process is working. Is 200 too small? I don't know. But he's worked his whole life, and that's all he can afford. It's a good point. I'm not a person here to say. Yeah. I mean, if he's doing everything ethically and doing the hard work, conservation, I couldn't say he was doing a bad thing. Do you have, and maybe an, an, an ethics is not the right term here. It's a preference thing. Do you have a preference? Do you, Clay Abernathy, would say, I wouldn't hunt X acreage of, of high fence? Or not really? I, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I wouldn't hunt 10 acres high-fenced, but yep. is 200, 100? I really don't know. Hmm. I don't know what... If you're asking me where I, if I... If I had an option to go hunt a 200-acre ranch for an Oryx or a 2,000, I'd pick the 2,000. And why? I think it'd be harder to find it. Okay, so you want more of a challenge. Yes, sir. Yeah. Do you think that that challenge is tied to having time to be able to experience the challenge? So, for instance, someone coming out, you know, may not have the time. They've got one day. They've got two days. They've saved up. Okay, I want to I want to kill a scimitar horn orix. Okay, it's four thousand dollars. It's a lot of money. And I really, at the end of the day, that individual is hoping, let's be honest here, that individual is hoping he gets one. Agree? Agree. So can we blame the guy for wanting to increase his chances as much as he possibly can, given time constraints and the financial investment? What do you think, Stephen? Yeah, I do. But I also think... Yes, you blame the guy? No, no, no. No, you can't blame the guy. Right. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. think there's different types of people who want to harvest an animal. Right. And I don't know which one's right or wrong. I think sort of it's a personal preference of how you do it. Of course, there are ethics to hunting, you know, as all hunters know. Um, <clears throat> but the one that doesn't get a good opportunity or have the means to do it, yeah, I mean, a short hunt might, might fit what he's looking for. Should we as a hunting community look down at that individual? Not look down, no. No, I don't think you should look down on it. Now, if it's a a released hunt, that's totally different. But if it's a... Why is that totally different? Why is there, and I'm pushing you purposefully here because these yeah. are the things, these are the things that the hunting community struggles with and I'll, and, get, and and tie to high fence hunting. There's probably a stigma that, that that is what high fence hunting is. That you go buy your animal, you pick them out of a catalog, it gets released into a pen 
The hunter shows up, opens the gate, closes the gate, walks in the pen, looks around, finds the animal in the corner, and shoots it. And there'll always be people in the industry that do that. There's always somebody in every industry that gives us a bad name. Right. So the idea of... Maybe it's simple as put and take is completely apart. Maybe we should separate put and take from high fence hunting. Agree? Agree to separate the two? Yeah, that they do not. Correct. They do not live in, even though put and take has a high fence. Those two things are totally different endeavors. Yes, sir. So why do we have an issue with put and take? Well, unfortunately, you're asking two people that have been spoiled in hunting. I mean, all we know is big track hunting. Right. Uh, we've never had to hunt anything small. But you hear the dilemma, right? Yeah, I could see how there's a dilemma. And we lean more towards large herd hunting. But that's what we like and that's what we do. Large track hunting from a wildlife perspective is probably... It, 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 almost, it lends itself to the sustainability of wildlife. I think you could make that distinction. Maybe that's how you dif that's how you differentiate the two put and take and 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 high fence and maybe then that's where how you can define an acreage number is that anything that is small is too small to sustain a population through time. Very absolutely good point. Is a place that is probably put and take. Whereas a thousand acre high fence that you are curating a whitetail deer management program that's growing bigger bucks, you're sustaining that herd with the potentially, you know, and this to all wildlife, every so often you're going to have to introduce a new line of genetics in there to ensure that you're not, you know, doing inbreeding or some sort of bottleneck effect on your genetics. Right. But technically, it's still sustaining the population. You are hands off, essentially, in terms of manipulating the population. We can take it one step further on this track that we talked about last night. Stephen, how many animals do you think you've produced off this property <laughs> that weren't killed on this property that were actually sold and sent somewhere else? For every species? Yeah. Last night after we talked, and we thought, what, around 1,500 orcs? 15 to 16, right. But we think we might be low on that. It's hard to really say, but... Um, Plus you've got natural mortality. Right. And then what you've harvested, what we've sold, they're very hardy animals. So let's say 2,000, 2,500 oryx, okay? Okay. How many orcs do you think you've shot in 30 years? How many orcs are shot a year? 
the most in one year was probably 25. Okay. So 25 times 10, 250 times 2,500 times 30, probably let's use your maximum. So we, as we'll, we'll be as conservative as possible on the number, 750 Oryx killed, 2,500 produced. One to four to one ratio, five to one ratio. How's my math there? Three to one. Three to one. Whatever it is. (laughs) Three to one. And still have roughly 400. And roughly have 400 on the landscape. Yeah. That's pretty good from a sustainability of wildlife perspective. And especially if you throw in the mix, the fact that scimitar oryx are endangered on their native range in northern Africa. Mm Mm-hmm. As I said, I, I don't know what, I'll have to look at my facts again, but you probably have more scimitar horned oryx on this property than they are in the native range back in Northern Africa. Unbelievable. Like we probably saw more today just driving around. Yeah. And what did you say? What? You said it was like nothing, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most endangered antelope species not the one just an endangered antelope species and to you it's like nothing yeah why because it's a part of the landscape here really is see them daily see them daily and you've got you know you take care of the habitat here such that the wildlife proliferates yeah that's that's what it comes down to man I think the idea of here's the, let me ask this question because this is another one that I keep getting freaking bombarded with through our social media platforms is this idea of limiting native species movements. Well, Stephen brought up a good point about that last night. Game cameras. That's that, just yeah. That's what the whole stigma is with the high fence is whitetail hunting. Right. Well, I think the stigma is the big genetic freaks. Yes. Whitetail hunting, you know. Again, but that, you know, and and then you know you throw in what how we just defined high fence, you know, sustainable wildlife. The the whole genetic freak component of a whitetail really has nothing to do with the sustainability of the wildlife herd. It's just bringing a certain genetic, you know, into the line and you're just growing big bucks, right? That's, and these are just big genetic freak bucks that they just, you know, buy the genes and bring them into the population pool. And yeah, even AI. Well, that's yeah, tied into it, right? The whole yeah. AI system. Yeah. Is your phone buzzing again? Yeah, sorry. Nobody ever called so, except I was for... Too. <laughs> The and I, I think in Texas in the hill country, with the high fence stigma, there are a lot of people in the exotic industry that grow them just to sell them to ranches. They don't want to hunt them, so they are in smaller areas, so they're easier to capture or dart and to load mm, out for sure. Yeah, but those those, those aren't getting hunted. But maybe the people driving by don't know that. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. 
Messiest. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, driving in West Texas is like, and you guys have been to South Africa. It just reminds me of South Africa. Good tar roads, you know, double highways, big high fences on either side. And every so often you get to see an African animal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a, a zebra and a wildebeest and hemsbok and... No, this is... um. I appreciate the hospitality um, that you've afforded us, but this is a special place. And it's special for lots of reasons, I think. You know, it's special because of the family component to it, right? This is It's been a part of your family for 30 years. A lot of memories. Yeah. Lots of memories. And you're going to make those memories with your kids, and then, mm. you know, you'll be, in, you'll be the Daddy Jacks one day. <laughs> Pointing the finger. Pointing the <laughs> finger, exactly. Why don't you kill that thing? Yeah. <laughs> don't you know how to age a deer? Yeah. Didn't I teach you right? Yeah. Anything else on your heart? Anything else that, from a high fence perspective, you want to say to the 10 people that listen to this podcast? Actually, it's a lot more than that. But Yeah. Stephen? If somebody was really uh, open-minded and against it, but they're open-minded, not just somebody that's going to dog it no matter what they learn, really should consider a weekend of uh, getting behind a fence and really checking it out, you know, so they can have a different perspective. Maybe they have, and they're still against it, but... And that's okay. Yeah. Isn't that so true to everything in society today? Yeah. I mean, you can get on the news and read a two-sentence blurb you can make an opinion and stick with it. You know, if you read the whole article, that two cents blurb may not make a bit of sense. Correct. You know. Yep, hundred percent. Clay, we wouldn't be here today without high fences. Having this interview. Good point. And it's, um, and bringing our grandfather, Daddy Jack, would bring friends down. Uh, we bring friends that had never had the chance to go to Africa. They come down here and just take pictures all day long. Mm -hmm. They'll just go out and walk mm -hmm. and take pictures. And just and then just hearing them talk about it and kind of living that experience. I mean, here in Texas, but they felt like they were in Africa. For sure. No, it's totally out of Africa, man. I love it. I love coming down here. Well, thank you for coming. Well, I appreciate yes, your hospitality. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.